So, yes, the first reading uh, is from Romans. That's uh, chapter 8, verses 18 to 25. And you can find this on page 1135 in the Church Bibles. So that's Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 25. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that, has, hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. second reading is on page 5 of the Church Bibles. It's from Genesis chapter 3, and I'm going to be reading from verse 6, 8, through to the, <laughs> through to the end of the chapter. Oh, come on, I'll go to 6. Verse 8, through to the end of the chapter. So this is Genesis 3, page 5, starting at verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The snake deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the snake, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust for all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you'll eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. 
By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve, because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand, and take also from the tree of life, and eat, and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the Tree of Life. for reading to us and David beforehand. Um, Let's keep Genesis 3 open, uh, if you would, and we'll pray with God's word open before us. And we want to thank you, Heavenly Father, that Jesus knew the truth of that word of yours, that human beings don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. He knew the truth of it and he lived it. He lived it uh, even though we failed to live it. We thank you for a perfect saviour like him. We pray that you'd help us by his spirit to uh, take every word you speak to heart and to ingested into our lives and let it feed us and sustain us and we pray that it would be life to us with a capital L feed us and uh, keep us trusting you keep us going we pray through your word today we ask it father in Jesus name amen I think we're off the program card at this stage This is the last in the series in Genesis for the time being. We'll be back to it in the summer. Our title last week was The Start of the Trouble. And the um, news in our section today is in some ways worse than last week's bit. In some ways at any rate. Start of chapter 3, we read up to I think verse 7 last week, describes the original human rebellion. Bad news. But our section describes God's verdict on human rebellion, the consequences he imposes. And arguably that's even more serious. Though I'm hoping that we'll see that there is good news as well. But the question it raises is this. What will God do about human rebellion? And I've got three headings which will hopefully walk us through the passage that was read by Tim. First, the confrontation. Because God loves us enough to confront us in our sin. Let me read from verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. It's a lovely picture from God's side of God's grace already, but even more to follow. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? 
So God's first word to fall on humanity is a word of grace. He's seeking them. And that's the question that ever since has sounded out of eternity into time as the creator seeks to draw women and men willingly back to him. He's saying it to you this morning. He's saying it to me. Simon, where are you? Put your name in the blank there. Where are you? That is God's gracious question, seeking. Now look at man's response, though. We saw, I think, the shame of verse 7 last week with those silly fig leaves, and now it's the fear of verse 10. He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. That makes sense, doesn't it? If you or I take God's place, if we cast ourselves as the rule makers of the universe, and then we hear God's voice, is it surprising in that situation that we're afraid? We try to hide from God as he gently and graciously calls out to us. It's what Francis Thompson described in that poem, The Hound of Heaven, which was uh, so significant in the life of C.S. Lewis, the great Christian apologist of last century. The Hound of Heaven, of course, is God himself. This is what Francis Thompson said. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind. And in the midst of tears, I hid from him and under running laughter. So all the different details of our lives. We're inclined to be on the run from God, but he's seeking us. I know I've done that, run from him. I guess we all have. Here is man dodging from tree to tree. Uh, Think about it, people do this exactly when they're faced with the good news of Jesus Christ. If you deal with one argument, how can we trust the New Testament, whatever it might be? You chop down that tree as best you can, they skip to another one. Of course there's no evidence of Jesus actually being God is there. That evasion tactic we all have, fleeing from God. And the third response, therefore, is the evasion of responsibility in verses 11 to 13. Shame, fear, evasion. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree from which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. That old lame joke goes, Adam blamed Eve, Eve blamed the serpent, and the serpent didn't have a leg to stand on. You can detect actually in that little interchange there the two classic answers to one of the big questions people have, where did evil come from? One classic answer to that down the years has been to try and trace it back to God himself. And verse 12 expresses that. The woman you put here with me, says Adam, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Uh, Monism, which is basically the philosophy behind religions like Hinduism and Buddhism, finds good and evil in God. Traces it back to him. The other classic answer to the problem of evil is dualism, which suggests instead that there is another evil force in opposition to God in the universe, and the two are locked in conflict. And that's expressed sort of in verse 13. The woman said, 
the serpent deceived me and I ate it. But actually, God didn't accept either excuse. And the Bible doesn't really answer the question quite the way we often would like to, would wish it to. Where does evil come from? Maybe the origin of evil is left a mystery like that deliberately so that you and I don't duck our own responsibility for evil. Evil can't be explained. It has to be acknowledged in me. It's not just out there. So I've got an excuse for it. I make my own contribution as well. And there is no valid reason for our human contribution to evil. It is irrational. The only valid response to sin is confession. I've got to take responsibility for my own sin. I can't evade responsibility by parking the blame on somebody else. The buck stops with me. So I can't trace it back any further and say somebody else's problem. I did it. That's the response to evil in one sense. I know that's not a full answer, but you get the outlines of it even here, I think. Adam and Eve would not accept the blame. And so God's word, which had provided the moral framework for life in the garden up to this point, now pronounces the curses under which we've lived ever since, actually. So on after the confrontation to the curses. This is really uh, verses 14 to 19 of the chapter. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You'll crawl on your belly and you'll eat dust all the days of your life and I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now, there'd been an interchange, had there not, between the man and the woman and God, but there's no interchange here with the serpent at all. God doesn't have a conversation as such. He just pronounces a curse. The woman should never have listened to the creature rather than the creator, and the creator reasserts his authority over uh, Satan. Then other areas of curse as well follow. The relationship that she had put above her relationship to God is spoiled. Let me read on, verse 16. To the woman he said, I'll make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor you'll give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. When mankind was first created in chapter 1, They were told to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And now all that fruitfulness is going to be marred by pain and danger and struggle. They say actually the most dangerous journey any of us ever travels is the seven inches between our mother's womb and the open air. So pain in childbearing is traced back to here. And also the struggle in relationships between men and women to love and to cherish becomes to desire and to dominate. And the battle for the sexes of the sexes is traced back in one sense to verse 16 as well. God's second creation ordinance gives you another point or two where the curses fall to. The second creation ordinance in chapter 1 was to subdue the earth and to rule over it. And that too is now going to be painful struggle. 
verse 17. To Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. And you'll eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you'll eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. I think there's a mercy that the curse is on man's realm, not on man himself. That's slightly different from the way the curse fell on the serpent. But really nothing constructive is said to Adam there. You think the grand promise that was made by the devil, you'll be like God. It turns out to be pain, sweat, and the dust of death. So the disturbance between human relations, between the man and the woman, is matched by this disturbance in the natural order. Work becomes hard, a sweat, computers crash, and the ecological balance constantly eludes humanity from this point onwards. People have listed three different kinds of alienation that are chronicled in the chapter. Alienation from God, the lovely idea of walking with God in the cool of the day has actually been replaced by running from him, hiding. Alienation between people, beginning with the fig leaves and the shame of verse 7 and leading on to the brutalizing of male-female relationships in verse 16. And then alienation with creation itself as childbirth and work sort of basic processes of life become a painful struggle. This whole wonderful world in which we live, the marvellous, complex cosmos, was supposed to be like a vast spinning wheel centred on just one point, the relationship between God and humanity. And when that centre went awry, the hub of the wheel is off-centre. You know what happens to a wheel when that occurs. And that's why the world we live in is as it is. It's full of inexplicable tragedy, pain, suffering, sorrow, disappointment. And we've prayed about various areas where we're aware of that just in the last week. I guess we could add a list from our own lives, even if we thought about it without great difficulty. When a child gets chickenpox, at some point spots are going to appear on the surface, as it were, on the outer skin of the body. And it doesn't make sense at that point to ask, oh, why is this spot appeared here on my chest or my cheek, if a child were to ask that question? The reason is obvious. The virus is in the bloodstream. Spots could pop up anywhere. And when you and I encounter the awful tragedies of our world, wherever they break the surface, whenever they break the surface, as I said, we've had some this week in the village and in our world, It's similar. There's no human answer available to, why is this happening here? Uh, Why is it happening now? Why this person and not some other? But it all points in one direction. Since Adam, we've been locked into a world which keeps begging the question, what's gone wrong? Why is there pain at all? And it's not just an automatic thing. Romans 8 says that she was something that God set up 
and we have to try and discern the kindness of God to make sure that through the difficulties and struggles and pain and suffering of our world, our environment keeps warning us there's something radically wrong. There's so much beauty, but so much pain as well. So much that's lovely in our world, so much that's heart-rending. So much dignity in humanity, and yet so much degradation as well. And we would not, I think living in a lovely place like Little Shelford, it's easy to think when life most of the time is fantastic, we would not pay any attention to God naturally in our sin where there weren't the warning shots in one sense to say our world is dislocated and out of whack. The solution doesn't lie in the environment itself in husbanding fossil fuels, recycling our aluminium, being nice to the ozone, good though those things obviously are to be. It's not a problem with the human environment, is it? It's a problem with the human heart that's being highlighted here. And this world that you and I live in is saying it to us every day. It's pointing us back to a broken relationship with God and pleading with us to take advantage of the, 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 the mending work that he has done ourselves. We're trapped in a strangely mixed environment. We're all born out of Eden now because the center of the wheel has fallen out, the hub. Remember back to chapter 2, verse 17, God had said, when you eat of the fruit, you'll surely die. Well, ask the question then, is this what death is all about, these curses? We read from the end of the chapter for a bit more on this, and we'll begin to point a way to something slightly more positive as we do so. The Lord God said, this man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He mustn't be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he'd been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. For Adam, death as it's explained in that that sort of uh, imagery there, is a a change of place. It's from within the garden to outside it. And it's a change of relationship to God, from fellowship to banishment. (coughs) So Adam and Eve died, you could say, when God banished them from the garden and placed cherubim with a flaming sword between them and the tree of life. Their physical death was an inevitable consequence that followed in its own time. But the process of death was set up right from the start as they took the fruit. They had to be barred from the tree of life uh, as a result. When Adam Adam left the garden, of course, he took all his children with him. We're all born east of Eden now. So the centre of the wheel is gone. The whole universe groans in bondage to decay. But if the death sentence falls in one sense upon us all there are also hints of the beginning of a rescue plan in the heart of God here as well. So on to the cure as we begin to draw to a close. Because God was not nonplussed by Adam and Eve's rebellion. There's no hint that his sovereignty 
was jolted even a tiny bit in the chapter. He takes it all in his stride. And even as he dealt with the serpent, the woman and the man in awful judgment, you get the first glimmer of the gospel, of a rescue plan that's already in God's heart. Look at verse 15. We've already read it. But let's look there first. Sorry, back a page for that verse. Verse 15, and I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. So the woman's offspring would crush the serpent's head. Uh, Here's the first hint as it unfolds of all sorts of things, of Jesus' incarnation. It points to a representative man who's going to be born, who will tackle evil. Here's the first hint of the cross, because that process will be costly and painful as the serpent strikes his heel. And here's the first hint of the resurrection. It's going to be a complete victory. He will crush the serpent's head. I know it's only a hint, a glimmer, but it heralds the dawning of the gospel day as it pointed on to Jesus Christ. Then notice verse 20 as well. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. Why did you get that bit there, you might think? Well, God's just finished pronouncing a, a fearful sentence on humanity. And then what do we read? Adam named his wife Eve because she'd become the mother of all the living probably not the most appropriate moment in one sense for a christening ceremony. You might think it's more appropriate for Adam to fling himself on the ground and grovel in the dust. But no, this is actually an act of faith, is it not? That Adam had understood and believed the promise of verse 15. That there will be offspring of the woman. And among them, one would arise who would crush the serpent's head. So in faith, Adam names his wife the mother of all the living. Now, when her first child is born at the beginning of the next chapter, Eve greets Cain's birth with a joyous cry. Presumably she's thinking, here's the offspring of the woman who's come to save them. But no, it's the murderer, Cain. Big disappointment. It's going to be a long haul for the saviour, but he will come. The dawn is already burning a little brighter. So Genesis chapter 3 is not all bad news, by no means. It starts off the search for the snake crusher, that search that spans the whole Old Testament. Who's going to crush the serpent's head? That's why there's such an interest in the Old Testament with genealogy. All the time the storyline is seeking one person and you get the genealogies as the families grow. I suppose other lines and races in one sense get discarded. Just one thread is being pursued. A bit like um, when you're streaming a a film, you sort of fast-forwarding, you're searching for one particular bit of a film. We're always pursuing the genealogical line that leads eventually to a stable in Bethlehem. But notice in the meantime, too, how God's grace provides for Adam and Eve's nakedness and shame. That's in verse 21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. In fact, the language speaks there of covering and atonement. Not just the covering of their physical shame before each other that's being covered up, but the alienation of their shame before God. 
And how kind of him, if you think about it, to provide for them materially in this way, in a world which was now much more hostile. The commentator Derek Kidney, Kidner shrewdly writes this, those coats of skins are forerunners of the many measures of welfare, both moral and physical, which man's sin makes necessary. Social action, now delegated to human hands, couldn't have had an earlier or more exalted inauguration. It's now our task, all of us, to provide practical remedies for the consequences of human sin. But God set the model back in Genesis chapter 3. And we've already seen it was God's love that takes them out of the garden as well. God expels them from Eden, lest they reach out their hand and take from the tree of life and live forever. Lest they get cemented forever in their rebellious state. So instead, God sets them in a world, our world, that's always reminding us of paradise lost. Always prompting us to ask the question, why? Why we long for utopia and can't create it? Why we long for eternity and are actually bound by death? We won't make any sense of our life here on this earth until we find our way back towards Eden by means of the crusher, by making Jesus Christ our Lord and Saviour. And that, of course, is the theme of the rest of the Bible. Our preacher last week remarked that the work of creation is dealt with in just a couple of pages in the Bible, right at the start, so thin. But the work of redemption, after that point, takes well over a thousand pages. It spans a millennia. And God had you in mind, God had me in mind, all the while. So however much we might wonder, do we matter to God? Well, I want to say in God's name, don't doubt that for a moment. Of course we matter to him. I love the fact that we've sung a song that I'd forgotten had a reference to the snake crusher in it. We've got the service sheets. Open them up to the middle there. No church arise, we sang. Verse 3. Come see the cross where love and mercy meet. Why don't we read it out loud? Sometimes if you're not singing it, if you read the words together, you might uh, see some of the force of what we've sung. Let's read verse 3 together. Come see the cross where love and mercy meet as the Son of God is stricken. Then see his foes lie crushed beneath his feet for the conqueror has risen. And as the stone is rolled away, and Christ emerges from the grave, this victory march continues till the day every eye and heart shall see him. Yeah, I love that. The snake crusher's come, hasn't he? So hang on to God's purpose and hang on to his grace. Or rather, lean into God's purpose and lean into his grace. The cross has happened, the resurrection has happened, and there is a victory march going on, if you've got eyes to see it, in the life of God's people now. I know there's death and disappointment, I know there's scandal in the church, and other things that rock us and make us pretty miserable. I was very glad this week that we had two high points in amongst some of the, uh, 
the uh, sadness and struggle of the week. I went on, a, on Tuesday to a funeral in town at St. Andrew the Great for Johnny Kingsman, who some of us will have known here. Um, died not yet 50 years old and leaving a growing family. And there was much to be sad about. But actually, I've not been to a funeral like it for a courageous testimony through the tears to a God who can crush evil. And it was happening in the funeral as he was glorified. And people were encouraged and lifted through that. Friday, uh, we, we had mention of Alan's uh, very sad death. This is a man that was loved in the village, did lots of good things for the village over time, and cruelly snatched away, very suddenly. Um, I, I love the fact, though, that there were Christian people there as he died, rallying just to uh, show the love of Christ in that situation. That was a mini-victory. And then, as I mentioned, the, uh, the lovely evening on, on Friday night, which was just an ordinary fellowship occasion for the women that were there in the rectory. But actually, that is a miracle, that God is at work in people's lives in that way. So I took heart on a, a, a rough week, and rough in other ways that I've not mentioned as well, that the victory march continues. We should believe that, shouldn't we? The cross says it's happening. Romans 16 says the God of peace will finally crush Satan under our feet. When God starts something, you can rest assured he will finish it. So let's trust him. And as I said, lean into his purpose and lean into his grace. Let's pray together. And we want to stand on that promise that you are the God of peace who will finally crush Satan under our feet. We want to praise you this morning, Father, for Jesus Christ. We thank you for the cross and his glorious resurrection. And we thank you for every uh, pointer to springtime, as it were, uh, and the, the victory and the renewal of creation and the uh, final vindication of your people. We thank you for that and we pray you'd help us to be confident in you and trust you in the meantime. Uh, we thank you that you never let us down when we trust you. You are faithful and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.